Hello, Greg. Hello, Dwayne. Hello, Tyler. Hello, Dwayne. Are you all ready to talk about criminal justice reform and COVID-19? I'm always ready to talk about criminal justice reform. Less ready about COVID-19, but then again, none of us are. So. Yeah. Welcome to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is the impact COVID-19 is having on the Criminal Justice Reform Priority Initiative. Here to help us understand that impact is... Hello, my name is Greg Glott. I am the Criminal Justice Policy Fellow for Americans for Prosperity. Uh, prior to coming on to uh, AFP, I was uh, the uh, Director for State Initiatives for Right on Crime, which is a center-right uh, project of the Texas Public Policy Foundation that was working predominantly on criminal justice reform issues at the state level. Uh, even more prior to that, I was a uh, law clerk for a, a trial court in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, which is where Annapolis is. Uh, and then I was also attorney in the Baltimore, Annapolis area doing criminal, civil, uh, and family law litigation. And uh, I'm Tyler Koteski. I'm a criminal justice policy analyst here at AFP, where I've been for about the past year and a half. Uh, and before that, a uh, policy analyst at the Reason Foundation, also looking uh, at state political issues for about three years. We have seen a lot of good progress made in the criminal justice arena um, <clears throat> over the past few years. What I'm curious now, and hopefully you can help me help me understand better, is is what's happening in the criminal justice reform arena now in the midst of this uh, this pandemic? Well, yeah. So, you know, you kind of think about everything going on around us when we were discussing, you know, how our lives have completely changed. Uh, from social distancing to not going to work to washing your hands to the point where you don't think enough lotion in the world is ever going to get them uh, moisturized again. Uh, if someone needs to have a billion-dollar idea to have hand sanitizer that also works as a hand moisturizer, maybe that exists, and uh, I'm, I'm behind the times. But, uh, yeah, I mean, all these different things, restaurants closing down, every, everything. And then you think about, so what areas are most susceptible to the spread uh, and really the major effects of COVID-19. And it's been nursing homes and uh, cruise ships, these tightly compacted areas of individuals that can readily transport the disease from one person to another. And when you start thinking about it, a prisoner jail is probably the most susceptible for a variety of reasons to have a major impact and spread rapidly. And we're actually already seeing that in a lot of facilities. You have a lot of individuals that are either incredibly elderly or already um, have underlying medical conditions. Uh, jails and prisons have a much larger proportion of their population that has um, some sort of health condition already. Uh, you're, you're talking about cramped, unsanitary spaces where a lot of people are joined in in a lot of areas. You, you think of these kind of um, prison cells and they may have one or two people. There's a lot of places, particularly in jails, where you have 20, 30 people all cramped up in the same spot. Um, which makes it very easily, if one person has it and you don't have good proper quarantine procedures or they're asymptomatic, that can spread very quickly. Um, and so you have all these different variety of, of issues from sanitation to the population to also, um, you know, the close quarters. And you're talking about just, you know, a, uh, you know, oil, you know, fire and gasoline. It's just going to blow up. And we're seeing that uh, particularly in places like Rikers Island in New York. 
work. There's been a huge outbreak there. There's been a lot of other jurisdictions. So um, as more of these outbreaks are continuing and more of the threat of this, not only to the individuals that are being incarcerated there, but also to the jail staff, um, sheriffs, prosecutors, judges, um, Supreme Courts are all taking major um, action uh, to try to lessen these populations and limit contact between um, actors in the criminal justice system and those that they're having contact with. What have you seen done across the country? Let's <clears throat> We can start local level, work our way up to state and then federal, or we can go federal, state and local. I, I'm good either way. Sure. Um, what have you seen that, that they're doing right and what do you what are you seeing that that you make makes you wonder what they were thinking? Sure, sure. So, um, and Tyler, please help uh, help me out here with this. So, Tyler and I have been actually tracking a lot of what uh, each state and locality have been doing, and we're going to be creating a document that we'll be putting out uh, soon that'll be kind of categorizing all this stuff. But so it kind of starts at the top, right? And so when you look at criminal justice uh, and the correction system, think of it as a balloon. And so when you try to squeeze a population one place, it's just going to jut out somewhere else. And so it really takes, it takes a village. It takes the locals. It takes the state actors. It takes Department of Corrections. It takes the health team to all really minimize this impact. And so the places that I'm seeing the best results at right now are places where you're looking at communication and cooperation amongst all the law enforcement actors at the state and local level. Uh, and so a lot of Department of Corrections right now are limiting transfers from one facility to another. So for a variety of reasons, you'll have uh, someone from a, you know, a high level of security go down to medium risk security, so they'll have to move to a different facility. Um, you have a lot of people coming from jail um, that are being held there, and then they're convicted or sentenced, and then they're brought back up to the Department of Corrections at the prison system. Department of Corrections is a lot of places, uh, Virginia being an example, Florida, a lot of other, um, that's Texas, um, is stuck those transfers from jails. And so what you have is just jail holds going on where their prison, po their jail population is expanding quite a bit because they can't move those people up to the prison. And so in places where that's happening, you're seeing a lot of different sheriffs and prosecutors say, okay, who are the people that we can, without damaging public safety, release from our jails right now that either have been convicted of certain offenses and are doing their sentence there or are pre-trial and are just defendants and they don't have to be held uh, in the local jail uh, to actually have, um, you know, some negative public safety risk. And so I know Collin County, uh, kind of close to Dallas, um, has been doing that a lot, saying to their police officers, um, hey, please stop citing and arresting and booking people for low-level offenses. Just give them pretty much what a, amounts to like a ticket and tell them this is the date that they need to come to court, probably going to be electronically. Um and doing things like that. And then you're seeing in, in a lot of jurisdictions, um, I think Racine, Wisconsin is a good example of one, where the prosecutors and um, defense attorneys and the judges are all getting together and saying, hey, who are the people that are in jail right now waiting pretrial that don't need to be there right now? And so they're looking at these populations who is low risk and just couldn't afford their bail at that time. And so they're lowering those bail amounts to allow for people to get out, or they're just releasing them on their own recognizance, which allows them to go out. But they're still going to be, um, you know, charged and possibly convicted of an offense later on, but there's just where are they awaiting their trial? Um, a lot of jurisdictions are doing a lot of things with, you know, audio and telephonic recording. So um, the Department of Corrections and all the court systems in Texas, for example, are working with YouTube and Zoom to have all their different proceedings that they need to happen. I mean, the courts still have to run. There's domestic violence things, child protective suits. People have to have bail hearings, things like this. And they're doing that all over Zoom recordings. Then to abide by public records acts, um, they're actually having these put on live on YouTube. And so a lot of different jurisdictions are doing a lot of great things 
um, you know, coming around. And, and Tyler, if you have any other examples of what's good, I can get into what's bad after that. Yeah, um, I think I'll add too that uh, a lot of what Greg mentions in terms of things like uh, citing folks instead of immediately arresting them on the spot if they're lower risk or looking at uh, you know proportions of jail populations that we can safely release ahead of their trials. A lot of these are things that we've talked about even before coronavirus as just better ways to uh, you know, run our justice system that, you know, saves taxpayer money, but can still protect public safety. And I think um, while we're unfortunately faced with such a dire public health crisis right now, um, at least in the number of jurisdictions that are stepping up to really put these plans into place to protect both the health of incarcerated individuals and, and their staff, and by extension, our communities, it's really uh, been impressive. I know, you know, another example of, of one of those, uh, you know, individual counties that's been taking good actions is uh, Davidson County in the Nashville area, uh, you know, where they've specifically been looking at uh, all the people they can ID in their jails for um, early release consideration. And, you know, we're looking at folks like pregnant women, people over 60, folks who are immunocompromised or who are set for release within a year and have good disciplinary records. So again, not just uh, releasing folks willy nilly, but, uh, you know, trying to do so in a manner that's consistent with public safety. You know, there's something you said in there that I found uh, really interesting because it took me back to the podcast we had just recently on telemedicine and uh, in the telemedicine response to this pandemic. And the similarity there is a lot of the things that that PI was calling for, that's what's being done now. And you just said very pretty much the same thing. A lot of the things that the community had been calling for, that's what's being done now. What are we are, are we planning on after this is all done when this starts winding down? I, I've, I've often said if there was a regulation or a law that was suspended during this pandemic, that regulation or law should either be repealed or forgotten. Is that is that a stance that you could see the organization taking? Is that the stance we're taking now? No, that, that's a great question. And, and one of the things that you really need to be cautioned of, and I've seen a lot of different recommendations and a lot of things where people are just essentially trying to throw everything out there to get every ounce of what they've always wanted accomplished, accomplished. I think we saw that during the budget uh, negotiations at the federal level, uh, things that had nothing to do with the actual pandemic were trying to get tossed into you know a 300 page bill. Um, and so we've really done a very focused job of making sure that anything that we're recommending is not something that we would not normally recommend during a time, um, you know, of, of, of peace, for lack of a better term. Um, so things like citing individuals that don't amount to a very high public safety risk instead of booking them in a jail. That's something that we've been advocating for for a very long time. Obviously, the consequences of not abiding by those uh, policies has a much broader and direct impact now during a pandemic, but it's not something that we would normally uh, not uh, recommend. Uh, looking at individuals while they're in uh, prisoners or jails at the last leg of their sentences, you know, six months if you're in prison, maybe eight weeks while you're in jail, and looking to see can they move to a, towards a more home confinement or pre-release custody um, mechanism rather than just staying in jail and then maxing out and then going out on the street. Um, you're seeing that in a lot of jurisdictions uh, right now during this pandemic that normally would not have 
been taking those actions, but I think it's something that should continue. And so with not a lot of legislators meeting, these are actions that are being done by judges, local law enforcement, prosecutors, Department of Corrections that they can do in their day-to-day processes after this. Um, and so I think looking at this, there's a long, hard look that I think a lot of these jurisdictions should see and say, hey, we were able to minimize our jail populations. Crime didn't increase. Uh, we were able to focus on individuals that were higher risk and more dangerous. And we're allowed to keep cops more on the street rather than doing paperwork back in the jurisdiction for a low level, you know, drug possession or a public order offense or something like that. And so I, you know, I think when you're talking about, you know, mass releases or not sentencing people or not citing people, you know, those types of things probably, you know, shouldn't shouldn't be abided by, you know, fully as we move forward here. But a lot of the different um, approaches that law enforcement's taking at the local and state level should probably carry on um, well after this. And so I think this is going to be a very interesting dynamic once we kind of move past this pandemic stage on how law enforcement kind of analyzes what they've done and what types of lessons they can learn for future interactions uh, with police or prosecutors or the criminal justice system in general. I went to uh to Facebook, which is where people go to get the facts of the matter. I mean, let's be honest, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and someone had written on there that they're letting out violent offenders, but they're locking people up for meeting for church. Are they letting out violent offenders? Is that one of the bad things that they're doing, or is that just complete nonsense? I, I haven't seen any jurisdictions that have allowed for violent offenders to get relief. Um, there, there may be certain circumstances where someone's being held on a nonviolent offense. So say someone got, you know, a, a drug possession charge and uh, maybe in their past they had some sort of uh, assault of offense, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, a prosecutor and a judge and the public defender are looking like, hey, this guy's not a, uh, a public safety threat anymore. You know, he probably doesn't need to be held here. He just can't afford $3 a bail. Maybe it's it's time to let him go during this pandemic. Um, but I'm not seeing any mass releases of individuals that you'd be considered violent. I don't think that's occurring. Um, I know there's some areas um, of interest right now with Harris County where Houston is. Um, but I have, I've seen the list of kind of folks that they were looking at and targeting. Those are all individuals being held on nonviolent offenses. So uh, there may be some circumstances where people had something in their past, but I have not seen any releases of people that you'd consider violent or have a charge pending or, or you know, are convicted of something that is violent. So um, I think that's uh, uh, pretty hyperbolic, to say the least. Um, but I have seen, you know, you, this it's kind of this weird dynamic that we're looking at as the criminal justice system's contracting in certain places that is expanding in others. And so I know that there's been threats to close down churches permanently, um, you know, if they hold these up, um, you know, if they hold, if they kind of, you know, thumb their nose at some of these stay at home orders and things like that. Yeah. And I've seen that people have been arrested for violating these stay-at-home orders. But those have been much more willful violations um, that really don't have anything to do with, with, you know, the church themselves or anything else. These are individuals that are knowledge, have knowledge of the actual, um, you know, stay-at-home order, and they're still congregating, um, not necessarily in a church fashion, but somewhere else, a restaurant, bar, whatever, um, and they're still allowing these things to happen. I know someone in Maryland was just recently arrested after being warned uh, for having a bonfire party, and then he had another one two weeks later, refused to shut it down, so they arrest him. So you are seeing, you know, these minor expansions of the police power in certain areas, and probably um, a couple of them aren't warranted, um, but I haven't seen anything, you know, as expansive on that side either. But I'm sure we're going to get some cases where um, there's going to be some people that, you know, negligently violate, you know, one of these, you know, stay-at-home orders. They wanted to take a drive through, you know, uh, town, and they don't have anywhere to go, and 
you could see a uh, overzealous, you know, highway trooper or something like that plugging someone out. But, you know, the the enforcement mechanisms that I've seen so far have not been, you know, out out there. But I know that a lot of jurisdictions have been warning that they're going to start using uh, the police power significantly. So it's something that we're definitely mindful of and, and monitoring. Um, I think any time that you have these expansive roles and stay-at-home orders and you're using the National Guard or police to enforce them, I think we definitely as citizens and activists need to look at, at that as a watchful eye. And so um, we're definitely, Tyler and I are definitely going to be monitoring, you know, what these police enforcement actions are going to be to kind of actually have these uh, stay-at-home orders be um, regulated and mandated. Did you see recently, um, <clears throat> and I found this hard to believe, but apparently it happened, that in Rhode Island, they had the National Guard and the police going door-to-door looking for New Yorkers. Is that the type of thing you're talking about that, that you find concerning? If, if that's true, I would definitely find that concerning. Uh, wow. Uh, no, I have not heard that. I know that that's becoming quite a, you know, quite a major issue. I know that at the uh, Florida uh, border, they were stopping people coming from Louisiana, telling them to turn around. Uh, I've seen stories on that. I know... Uh, where I'm at right now in Delaware, um, there is a lot of different uh, checkpoints that are being put up because you're near borders, um, particularly with Philadelphia, that's becoming a hot spot. And they're saying, you know, people coming from New York need a mandatory uh, quarantine. But the actual hunt and search of folks that are from uh, New York, I have not seen that. That's, that possibly could be true, particularly at the local level. I think you're going to see a lot of different things on these border towns and things like that where people are trying to protect their um, their local populations um, are, are certainly going to be happening. I know where I'm at, uh, like I said, it's a lot of beach towns here uh, near Rehoboth and Bethany and Ocean City, and there was a lot of uh, state laws saying that you can't be on the beach except for you know exercising or something like that. A lot of these local jurisdictions, their off-season populations are generally people that are in the older uh, age categories, and so they're trying to protect them. And so if you're not a local, you're not allowed on the beach or the boardwalk or something like that, and I think they're going to be heavily enforcing those mechanisms. So I will think you're going to see a lot of NIMBY issues um, at the local level. Um, from a statewide standpoint, I can't see the National Guard banging on doors, but may, hey, maybe I've been proven wrong before. Um, but I do think you're going to get a lot of these local law enforcement enforcement orders, um, you know, beyond what the state orders are saying, and you're going to have a lot of issues there. Yeah, so just- I, I hate to uh, to confirm the fears here, but just uh, just did a quick check uh, on the interwebs, and it looks like indeed uh, the Rhode Island governor did order this, um, and I don't know how rigorously something like that's going to be enforced but certainly you know that's an instance of you know as much as we want to make sure public health's protected you know we also uh need to make sure that we're using uh state power appropriately and then i'll add a a different example luckily not from the united states but in uh western australia which is uh one of the provinces within Australia, I heard reports that they're allegedly using drones to enforce social distancing and therefore uh, cite people. And I'm not suggesting that that's about to happen here, but that's, you know, certainly another example where, uh, you know, taking the dystopian approach to uh, reduce transmission is, uh, you know, not the route we want to we want to go. And that is not that far removed from having the government give us telescreens that we could just put in our homes and we have to check in on every once in a while. But, you know, enough about George Orwell. 
1984. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it, uh, it's, it's going to be coming a lot more about George Orwell in 1984. It, it, it's a scary <laughs> idea. Isn't go it? on, yeah. Uh, I know that I have been an advocate uh, for some time of our governor, that our governor should have the National Guard on the border to keep Nebraskans out. But that's just general principle. (laughs) Um, Has nothing to do with That's day to day. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, uh, why aren't we doing this? And that's simply for Brad Stevens uh, when he listens to this. So what are you seeing? (laughs) What what are you seeing out there um, that isn't being done that should be? What are we recommending that hasn't been done yet? Well, um, you know, a lot of a lot of this action is going to take executive. Um, a lot of these recommendations are going to take executive action, and so you know, there's been a lot done at a lot of the local levels and a lot of the local jurisdictions to, um, you know, ease their jail populations and and do things like that. Um, but I have not seen too many governors come out and say we're we're going to put in um, you know in place some sort of expedited. Uh, parole hearings or commutations to, to really look at our prison populations. Um, the one that I have seen uh, in Michigan recently, um, the, the governor there um, is working with the uh, head of Department of Corrections to start looking at a list of individuals that are close to their time uh, on nonviolent offenses, close to their time being uh, uh, you know, released out probably like last six months or so, or if they're very elderly or if they're immunocompromised and try to get them onto, you know, home confinement, community supervision or something like that. Um, that is one of the only states I've really seen take an executive approach. That, and I think that's what you're really going to need to be seeing soon. Um, because people think that, oh, well, they're in prison, so they're going to be able to be quarantined there and kind of be safe. It, it's it shows a, a lack of understanding of what a prison is and how it operates and, and how much type of spacing and hygienics and cleanliness you can get into these those systems. It is not like a quarantine area. There's a lot of open space. There's a lot of places for for, for people that have to congregate. There's just no way to operate at near capacity at a lot of these facilities. And so it's going to take executive authority to start commuting uh, certain individuals, uh, particularly, like I said, the ones that are immunocompromised and elderly um, at the last end there. The federal government actually has began doing that. So in the in the Major Cares Act, and the you know you may have missed it because it's on one page of a 300-page bill, um, they're allowing for the expansion um, of current law that allows for the last six months of your, your time in federal prison uh, to be done through home confinement. So you can actually stay at home on some sort of pre-release custody, but you're still under the, the guise of uh, the Bureau of Prisons there. And so they're expanding that out from that six-month period. And uh, Attorney General Barr just directed the Bureau of Prisons to start giving him a list of individuals that could be eligible uh, for that expansion of home confinement. But I think a lot of governors need to take those actions as well and those steps um, to move forward. I know there's been, you know, talks and minor discussions, and there's been a lot of letters from activists to uh, for this to happen, but there has not been a lot of action. And, and you're seeing in, in prisons that are near at capacity that have poor hygiene, um, you're, you're seeing these outbreaks beginning, and they're not going to get better. They're only going to get worse. I think the Bureau of Prisons now has about 28 um, positive cases of COVID-19. Rikers Island has, um, it's a jail, it's a federal jail up in New York, has one of the highest um, positive rates of any population in the world. Um, and so you're going to start seeing these things, like we said. So without swift action um, at, at that executive level, you're, you're going to have uh, crises in, in, in your state prison. So we're hoping to see more of that as, as we come through. Um, I know that you know we really understand that there's a lot of other things that are going on, um, you know, with, with the healthcare system and other populations. But, you know, the if the prison systems begin 
in having massive outbreaks, that's going to affect not only the incarcerated employees, but the public at large as more people go in and out. And so, um, you know, for public safety, for health safety, we executives really need to start looking at major changes to how they're um, who's in their prisons right now. And there's there's also things. First of all, you know, reducing unnecessarily large prison populations for the safety reasons. There's, you know, that, that frees up kind of on a more practical level, just space to quarantine inmates that are sick that, as Greg rightly notes, just does not exist currently. So in order to even uh, effectively attempt to contain the spread of infections in prisons uh, while this is going on, you need that extra space. And I think, Greg, am I uh, right in saying the... the uh, in the first step act, right, was where they initiated that sort of pilot program for the six months home confinement. Yeah, so they're they're able to expand for for elderly individuals um, expanded home confinement. There was current law that allowed for for some uh, home confinement at the at the last stages, but this kind of expanded that out and really focused on elderly um, incarcerated individuals at the at the last legs of their sentence. So. Um, this is just a carry on from that program and expanding that into other other areas. But, yeah, you're right. Um, and then another thing I, w- I was thinking of, too, kind of more practically for the people who remain on the inside after some of these hopefully uh, uh, supervised releases uh, through parole go through is uh, another thing that governors can do is to have their corrections commissioners basically list hand sanitizer as contraband. Um, un- unfortunately, in a lot of facilities, it's just not allowed because of the alcohol content. And, you know, there there have been isolated incidents in the past of sometimes inmates making hand sanitizer cocktails, whatever. But, you know, I think the risk of that is certainly there, but it's much lower than a massive COVID-19 outbreak. And so, I think one of the few places I've come across so far is Ohio um, allowing that back in jails. Other places are looking at trying to make potential non-alcoholic variants. But that's another thing that uh, state governments can immediately do administratively to allow these necessary supplies to come in that not enough currently are doing. I'm just picturing Red from Shawshank Redemption, and instead of smuggling in posters of Rita Hayworth, it's cases of Germex. <laughs> You're not far off. Uh, yeah, it, it would go for a lot more uh, than the poster right now. Actually, out on the, uh, the outside right now, every time I go to the grocery store, it's, uh, yeah, no toilet paper or hand sanitizer uh, for the time being. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, tough times for all of us. What do, we, what do we still need to talk about? I mean, we've covered uh, what the, the state of the criminal justice uh, process is now, what the the federal, state, and local levels have been doing, what, we, what we're hoping to get done. Is there anything else that uh, we need to know before we go? Uh, I think uh, with, with court proceedings, I think that's a major issue as well. Um, you're seeing a lot of Supreme Courts put out orders, um, essentially closing down you know, pretty much any non-essential proceeding or matter or something like that. Um, and to your head, you're like, oh, that makes sense. But there's a lot of essential activity that still needs to happen. Um, bail hearings and child protective orders, you know, crime's been going down almost in every category, but domestic violence has actually been increasing in some cities. And it's probably because people are cooped up. They're maybe have just been laid off. They're, they're around people that they're normally not. They're at their jobs. And so we've actually seen a lot of uptick in domestic violence. So there's a lot of domestic violence protective orders that have to happen. And so 
how you're able to carry on court processes uh, to allow for people to, you know, not have to go into jail or hold there and get their cases expedited or to allow for people that are in a dangerous situation to actually move forward. They have to figure out ways to safely monitor that. And so, like I said, uh, Texas has done a really good job of having a lot of audiovisual capabilities that are being free of charge to local jurisdictions. And so those are good things that are going on there. But anytime you just it's going to take a lot of local government and state government cooperation uh, to get creative, how to minimize face to face interaction at, at all levels. And they have to work in concert. Like I said, you can't stop jail transfers to prisons and then expect the jail not to get overcrowded. Then that requires that sheriff, that prosecutor, that judge to come together and say who's in our jail right now who doesn't need to be there and who can move forward and a lot of jurisdictions are doing a good job at that but a lot of jurisdictions are kind of saying hey it's it's the same old adage here and we're going to continue to put people away uh, for the same stuff and we're just not living in that time right now um and so that they really need to be careful on how that happens because it just doesn't like i said affect the jail and prisons it's going to affect, affect society at large um as more people go in and out um i think we've seen Gosh, I can't remember how many people in the New York um, NYPD right now that have called out sick because of either, you know, being symptomatic or actually testing positive. And so you're going to see a potential major public safety crisis as more people from Department of Corrections don't feel safe in their facilities because they're not getting enough hand sanitizer or bleach or cleaning materials. And their unions have been writing letters now. I think we saw a scathing one from the Fraternal Order of Police in D.C. about how the D.C. jails just are ill-equipped to, you know, safely have their their um, their staff in there. And so you're seeing a lot more of that. This is not just affecting the incarcerated populations, but it's affecting the people that are monitoring them. If more people call out sick, um, you could have a major public safety crisis, and that's coming unless swift action is not taken. And another uh, another way on this, this theme of in- increasing remote contact, it, as far as public safety concern is concerned, is that when we're Looking at supervised release as well, especially for many of these uh, people that will want to be able to release to reduce those jail and prison populations, is making sure that they can get in contact with their probation or parole officers remotely as well and kind of uh, allowing some more flexibility on a lot of the conditions of release that people might have saying they need to, you know, get in touch with their their parole officer every so often and whatnot. So to the extent that some states like uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are instructing their supervision departments to allow for kind of the easing of some of these location-based requirements and for more remote contact, that helps reduce those sick calls Greg's talking about and and, uh, lower the rate of that community transmission. That's that's a great point, Tyler. And um, probation and parole is something that we had, didn't touch on too much. But obviously, revocations off of supervision are a major driver of a lot of prison populations. And so Department of Corrections really need to be mindful of that on how they're monitoring and handling. If someone's committing a new offense, obviously, you have to you have to deal with that in a certain way. But if someone's missing a meeting or it's failed a drug test or, or something along those lines, putting them back in prison or jail right now, um, is probably not necessary for public safety is actually going to exacerbate the problem. So I know Arkansas, for example, stopped using uh, jail as a, as a sanction for technical violations during this time. That was a really great move. They also suspended their supervision fees. Fines and fees are a huge issue right now. 
as these stack up and more people lose their jobs, you know, local and state jurisdictions really need to be mindful of what they're collecting from individuals right now because it's it's hard for a lot of people uh, moving forward as we've seen the unemployment requests are skyrocketing uh, at, a, at this rate. It's hitting people particularly heavy that have a lot of these supervision fees. So how do you handle those um, now and moving forward after this pandemic, I think is gonna be very interesting and really important to, to mitigating the, the problem. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. Don't forget to check out the show notes for added content, like links to stories or books mentioned and timestamps for key information discussed. If you have any questions regarding today's Top Priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions about our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect for this priority you'd like us to discuss further, please let us know. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks for listening.